Unlock your Bible. Discover the true meaning of life. Learn the cause of world problems and the astounding solution. Prove for yourself what the future holds. In the Trumpet Literature Library, you will find answers to life's most important questions. Explore these vital titles on Trumpet Bookshelf. Welcome to Trumpet Bookshelf. I'm Grant Turgeon. We're broadcasting to you at kpcg.fm, 101.3 FM in the Edmond, Oklahoma area from the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus in Edmond, Oklahoma. Last time on the show, I talked about the Ephesus era of God's church, the first out of seven prophesied church eras as discussed in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And what's so fascinating about the Ephesus era is that it was founded basically right after Jesus Christ died, when the Holy Spirit came down to all the ministers and members on the day of Pentecost in 31 AD. That was the start of God's church, founded, of course, by the head, Jesus Christ. And this church was led by the original apostles, and it was in direct conflict with a powerful counterfeit church that started just two years later in A.D. 33. In fact, all throughout the New Testament, there are warnings about Simon Magus and his false ministers and his Babylonian mystery religion, this religion where Old and New Testament teachings were mixed with paganism, and Simon was teaching that the law of God is done away. You don't have to obey God. You don't have to try to please God in the way that you live. You can just do whatever you want. Simon Magus had an epic confrontation with Peter, the, the chief apostle of God's one true church. You can read that in Acts chapter 8. We talked about that a bit last week. And this confrontation really did set up a dynamic, violent, 2,000-year rivalry between God's church and Satan's church. Peter so strongly rebuked Simon Magus that probably never another day went by where Simon Magus didn't think about that rebuke. If you remember, Simon Magus was trying to buy God's Holy Spirit. He was already empowered by Satan the devil. He was already performing fake miracles among the people in Samaria. And yet at the same time, he wasn't casting out demons from their poor, sad, hurting, suffering minds. He wasn't trying to help the Samaritans. But he was impressing the people with the supernatural acts that he performed. Now, Simon Magus, even though he had great power supplied to him by the devil, understood that he could have so much more power if he had God's Holy Spirit. He saw the fruits being produced by the one true church, and he wanted in on it. Not to serve God, of course, 
but to use the Holy Spirit for his own purposes, to try to get a bigger following for himself, to try to amass more power. He tried to buy the Holy Spirit, and Peter was having none of it. Now, about a decade later, in the 40s AD, Simon Magus appeared in Rome, and he won great favor there. In fact, I believe they even built a statue commemorating Simon Magus. And sure enough, throughout history, Rome has been the headquarters of the great false church. But this Ephesus era of God's church started in AD 31 and going all the way up to the Apostle John's death around the turn of the century, perhaps later, was constantly fighting against Simon Magus and his false religion. Most of the warnings against this religion are in the books written by John. You have the Gospel of John, you have his three epistles, and the book of Revelation. John warned repeatedly about the Babylonian mystery religion, which falsely took the name Christianity, which falsely taught a message about Christ the man rather than the, the true gospel that Christ himself actually preached, which was the good news of the coming kingdom or family of God. It was a counterfeit religion, a total fraud. And that's why the Apostle John, all throughout his writings, constantly lobbed attacks on that false church. He attacked them repeatedly. And yet, no, no matter how many times John could have attacked them, it still wouldn't have been too much. This false religion is such a poisonous idea. It is spiritual, mental bondage. It is misery, emotional destruction. This type of religion does not get good results in any way. It's almost like the spiritual equivalent of the idea of communism. You can never attack the idea of communism too much. It has killed hundreds of millions of people. And yet to this day, that poisonous ideology dominates in so many nations around the world. It's the same with this Babylonian mystery religion. Despite all of the destruction it has caused, especially when this false church has paired with strong nations to oppress the world, to kill countless true Christians and other professing Christians who disagree with them, people still are fooled by this false religion. And they still, by the billions, prescribe this way of thinking. So John was completely justified in attacking Simon Magus, attacking Satan's church as much as he did. 
And John was really trying to help the brethren. He was trying to make God's people aware of the threats they faced. If you remember from last week, the Ephesus era of the church was worn down after just a couple decades of persecution by Simon Magus and his false ministers. They were worn down, just like Revelation chapter 2 prophesied. And that's also a bit of history there about the Ephesus era too, by the time John was recording this. But here's what Revelation chapter 2 says about the Ephesus era, just as a recap, a, a brief reminder of what we talked about last week. Revelation 2, verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. And before that, it's talking about having patience, laboring, not fainting. But then verse 4 shows, eventually they did stop laboring. Eventually they did faint spiritually. They didn't want to fight anymore. The attacks were too hard to deal with. It's so much easier to just give in. And that's what the members of the Ephesus era of God's church eventually did, at least most of them. That became the characteristic that the Ephesus era was known for. Leaving their first love, no longer being as passionate about doing God's work, about holding on to and preaching God's truth to everyone as a witness to them. They were worn down by these attacks, and that's why John had to warn as strongly as he did. He had to try to wake these people up. John, for at least most of his writings, was imprisoned on a small island called Patmos. He was writing to the church, but he couldn't visit them in person. And in fact, there, there was a problem with counterfeit letters. These ministers of Simon Magus, probably, writing these fake letters, these letters making it seem as though they were from John. But they were just counterfeits. They were total frauds. They wanted to make it seem like John was advocating for a different message to be taught that John was trying to tear down the God family vision. They were forging letters to try to deceive the brethren. John even had to warn about that. So this was just a hard, hard attack on the Ephesus era of the church. And as Philadelphia Church of God Pastor General Gerald Flurry points out in his book, The True History of God's True Church, something similar happened to the church just a few decades ago. In this end time, God's church coming under attack from within, just like these ministers of Simon Magus crept into the church and attacked from within. Revelation 3 verse 9 talks about a synagogue of Satan They're pretending 
to be a part of the true church, but really they're serving the devil. That just happened a few decades ago. And they came out in the open after Herbert W. Armstrong died. After he was out of the way in the worldwide church of God, that synagogue of Satan came out and crushed God's church. Very similar to what was going on in the Ephesus era. John had to warn the people about several specific things. Like I said, constantly he was attacking the false church. Constantly he was tearing down their false doctrines because so many people in the church were being deceived. It was John's responsibility as a minister of God, as the one man God was using to lead the church, to warn and to protect the people from heresy. But it was a tough job being in prison like that. Here is uh, something that one of the Worldwide Church of God publications said about John's messages, about his letters from prison to God's church. Notice how John constantly hits at the necessity of keeping the commandments of God. Because the false system was preaching libertine doctrines. So Mr. Flurry explains that libertine typically means just sexually promiscuous. And he says, but in reality, that false system was preaching many lawless doctrines. So not just in the sexual area, but many doctrines lawless. So John was constantly writing about keeping the 10 commandments. He was counteracting the false message that was rapidly spreading throughout the church. He talked all about the law. He defined very clearly what it means to keep the law, how sin is the transgression of the law, how real true love is keeping the law. How often do professing religious people today talk about being loving, being religious, and yet at the same time, they do not love the law. They do not obey the law. Love is keeping the law. That's what John wrote about. What is love if... All you're doing is saying nice things, saying things that make people feel good, but that's all you have is words. What if your flowery words are not backed up by action? That is why true love is the keeping of the law, putting God's law into action. John was very clear about that. He had to be to fight back against Simon Magus. John also took a unique approach, especially in his gospel account, regarding God, the Godhead, so God and the Word, how they've existed together forever. Before there was 
the universe, before there was the earth, before there were angels and humans, God and the Word existing side by side in perfect unity, God in charge, the Word obeying and in total agreement with God. And John made it clear that eventually God and the Word would become Father and Son. When God used Mary, Christ's mother, when he conceived Jesus Christ in Mary, that is when they became Father and Son. God and the Word, Father and Son. It's a family vision. That's what the true gospel of God is all about. And that's what John talked all about. This wonderful, inspiring vision. The God family vision. So, John had to fight hard against the Trinity doctrine. You can see in the book of Genesis and in plenty of other places that the Holy Spirit is simply the power of God. It is not a person on the same level as God and the Word or the same person as God and the Word. No, the Holy Spirit is the power by which God can create, by which He can reveal His truth to us and open our minds so we can be called and converted. The Holy Spirit is the power of God. We have a booklet all about that. It's titled God is a Family, available to you for free at thetrumpet.com. John had to fight against this Trinity doctrine because, as Mr. Flurry writes here in the True History of God's True Church, the Trinity doctrine destroys the gospel. It destroys the truth about the God family. Simon Magus and his satanic Trinity doctrine claim that the Godhead is a little triangle and it is closed, not open to anybody. But the truth of the Bible is that God is opening up his family to all mankind. God wants family. And eventually, billions and billions of people will become sons of God. Every person who has ever lived will be given an opportunity to be in God's family. Those who have never known God will rise up again in a physical resurrection. This truth is incredibly inspiring. But Satan doesn't want this future opened up to us. He hates this because he never had the chance to become a begotten son. So, that is why the Trinity Doctrine exists. It is Satan's attempt at revenge. He was never offered the chance to be an, an actual, literal, spirit-born son of God. He was a mighty archangel with supreme musical talents and beauty named Lucifer. But he never had this level of potential where humans can actually eventually be transformed from physical flesh and blood into spirit invisible composition where we can actually be born spiritually 
as sons of God. What an incredible future we have. The Holy Spirit makes all of that possible. It's the bridge between our human spirit and the mind of God. It's what enables us to eventually perfectly one day think like God, speak like God, act like God, have all the same desires God has. That's the Holy Spirit power. It's not a person. It's power. As Mr. Flurry points out, this understanding of God and the Word, their eternal prehistory, came from John talking directly to Christ. He was closer to Jesus Christ than anybody. And in his writings to the Ephesus era, he was constantly reminding the people, look, I talked with him in person. I touched him. I know how he thinks. I know what he wants for you. I know what our future holds. Christ told me directly. Never forget it. You have to think that would really enhance John's authority within the church. That he had that firsthand experience, that direct contact with our Savior. So John absolutely obliterated the Trinity doctrine and reinforced the true alternative that God is a family. Now, you can read all about this. You can get so much more detail about everything we're talking about. In that book I've quoted from and mentioned already, The True History of God's True Church, available to you for free at thetrumpet.com. John was also the only apostle to write about the Samaritan woman. This is in John chapter 4. There's a really powerful lesson here for all of us, especially because of the, the stigma, the perception that religious people are often extremely judgmental of others. Like religious people are stiff, could never have a good time, always are looking down on others and thinking they're better than others. But here is this example of Jesus Christ stopping and talking to this Samaritan woman. Even though the Jews around him, even though his own disciples thought that the Samaritans were dogs, the Jews wouldn't even look at the Samaritans, much less talk to them. Yet here Christ is in John chapter 4 talking to this Samaritan woman. And as Mr. Flurry points out, it's very likely that this woman was also in a, a, an unlawful relationship with Simon Magus, an intimate relationship outside of marriage. So Christ actually took the time to talk with her. He even mentioned the Holy Spirit, even though at this point when Christ was still alive and on this earth, 
human beings didn't have access to the Holy Spirit yet. Remember, the Holy Spirit was first given to human beings on the day of Pentecost, 31 AD, with just a few other exceptions uh, throughout the Bible, just individual exceptions. But as far as anyone in the church being able to receive the Holy Spirit, that didn't happen until after Christ died. So Christ here is talking to this Samaritan woman, explaining the truth of the Holy Spirit, how it is like living water, how you can drink it and be filled. You'll never thirst again. That's what he's saying in John 4, verse 14. And that's not true of physical water. If you drink physical water, you're going to be thirsty again eventually. But if you're really drinking from this spiritual water, it will satisfy you forever. There's no end to it. And it does seem like Christ was talking about the Holy Spirit to this woman because he knew that Simon Magus, the man she was probably in a relationship with, would try to eventually possess the Holy Spirit for himself and use it the wrong way. He's telling her that she doesn't even have any clue what she worships or what her religion really is. John 4, verse 22, you worship, you know not what. We know what we worship. A pretty strong message there, a direct rebuke. He said, John 4, verse 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The truth is in the Bible, as Mr. Fleury points out. The law is outlined for us in the Bible. How to live is right there in the Bible. Do we live by that truth or do we make up our own truth? Do we just decide that truth is subjective and we can all define it for ourselves? Do we put our own traditions ahead of God's law and God's truth? That's what the great false church does. They absolutely put traditions ahead of truth. And we certainly should not be doing that. So this example shows us, as Mr. Flory shows, that not just the Samaritans, but all of us are dogs until God starts to work with us. We're all dogs physically and apart from God. And yet God still wants to work with every one of us. He still wants to give every human being who has ever lived a chance to obey him and to enter his family. That is the real inclusive nature of God's master plan. So here are these ways where John attacked Simon Magus and the false church. Not heaven or hell, but resurrections and every human eventually having a chance to enter God's family according to God's timing. John reinforced the law. He reinforced the God family vision and attacked and tore down the Trinity. 
He had to do all this to counteract these vicious attacks against God's church by Simon Magus and his false ministers. Now, like I said, the Ephesus era did end when the apostle John died, but the church stayed alive. It survived just as Christ said it would in Matthew 16, verse 18. And in fact, Revelation chapters 2 and 3 show that the church would go on past the Ephesus era for six more church eras, the last of which we are living in right now. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm Grant Turgeon. This has been Trumpet Bookshelf. You've been listening to Trumpet Bookshelf. Please email your thoughts to comments at kpcg.fm. Listen for new episodes every Friday at 10 a.m. Central Time.